Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. I am so excited to be talking to you all today. I had a lot of great, uh, I guess, topics to discuss today uh, that were sent in by the followers, you, you know, the people who follow me day in and day out, like the posts and whatnot. And I'm really excited to keep getting a lot of topic ideas. And if I haven't shared your topic on the podcast, it's not that I didn't like it. It's because I can only do a couple because otherwise these would be like three hours long. And I don't know if you'd want to sit through that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm going to keep sharing the topics, but keep sending them in because not only am I like learning through doing this and researching kind of what I want to talk about, but I'm also like learning new perspectives. And that's kind of the goal at the end of the day for me on this podcast is to give you all new perspectives on the culinary industry and kind of get that... I guess, get the new ideas out there to y'all and to kind of reinforce that there's more than just one way of looking at the culinary industry. So very excited to be talking today about a couple of different things. But first, as a reminder, I'd like to say, you know, if you're listening for the first time, you don't know what we're about. Um, basically, Line Cook Thoughts is a platform where we share what cooks are feeling, what they're thinking, along with their food. And really why I wanted to start doing this is because I really like the average you know, the everyday cook, not the average cook, I should say, but the everyday cook, someone who's working day in and day out and not really getting recognized. And I have such a love and passion for the people in this industry. And it still amazes me to this day about how many people dedicate their entire lives to preparing food for other people. And it's such a magical career choice. And it's such a honorable career choice. And it's something that's always inspired me to keep going day in and day out, no matter how tough a workday is, knowing that there's people on either side of me wanting to prepare food and make the best for their for the next guest experience. It really teaches me every day how how to value serving others and how to value life in general. And I think, you know, we do something that's very gratifying for us, but we also do something that's very gratifying for so many people. I would love for one day, I mean, I would like to start doing it to keep a counter of how many people I feed through cooking. And like at the end of my career, like just to show that, just to like kind of be like, wow, because I don't think we understand how many people we actually feed in the industry. Um, sorry, I'm going on a rant right now. This thought just came up and I really just want to share it with y'all. Like how many people do we feed? Have you ever thought about it? Cause I, I really haven't. And you know, say you do 200 covers a night and you're on a garbage station and you're doing that five to six days a week and you do that for two years, then you move to a different position and you do something else. And your career is typically 30 to 40 years long. You know, some are, some are shorter, some are longer. And that's a lot of people. I mean, that is a tremendous amount of people. And to think about that, you know, you're making all these people's lives better for that moment through food. And that's always what I think about at the end of the day is I'm helping someone get through their day. So whenever it's tough in the kitchen, whenever there's something hard going on, I am very excited because I get to, you know, create something new for other people and I get to create a new memory and a new moment of happiness for them in their day-to-day lives. So I just want you all to reflect on that, I guess, for this podcast. It's something I want to start doing is just having these reflecting moments in the beginning. So I really want you all to reflect on how many people you've fed so far and how many people you're going to be feeding. And just realize that your work doesn't go unnoticed because at the end of the day, someone's eating your food and is getting joy out of it getting sustenance, being, you know, sustained and being able to go on through their day not being hungry because they came in and ate your food. So just remember that it's a very powerful thing we hold as cooks that I feel like we don't touch upon enough. Um, in the age of social media and podcasts and Instagram, you know, we're always talking about the chef or the cooks now, but we're not talking about our impact as much as I think we should. And at the end of the day, it doesn't have to be like a Michelin star impact. If you're in a restaurant feeding people in a small town, you deserve to be, you know, awarded or at least recognized because that's an honorable thing to be spending your time doing. Uh, not everyone is a cook or a chef. I know more people want to because of the glamour of it all, but at the end of the day, not everyone is a cook because it's hard. But if you're willing to put up with that work ethic and you're willing to put up with, you know, the hard days and the long nights just to feed people, I mean, that's honorable and I, I really respect you for that. So I just wanted to say that before we got into the episode. Today's episode, I'm very excited to talk about. We're going to be talking about restaurants in small cities. Um, this is a theme we've been uh, kind of getting at in the last couple of, couple of episodes. It started with the Ryan Peters podcast, and now we're just, you know, it's something that I keep seeing popped up, and it's something I know that other people are starting to talk about. But I'm very excited to talk about it because, as you all know, and if you don't know, I'm from Buffalo, New York. If you're one of my friends, you're rolling your eyes right now because I always talk about Buffalo. But... I like that we have a city that has a chip on its shoulder and is trying to have a food scene that's as, you know, grand as the other ones around them, or maybe have their own identity where people would want.
people would want to come visit just for the food and I just think it's a very exciting and interesting topic to be talking about and I'm excited to hear your perspectives and I really want to get start to get some cooks from different cities talking about their food scene so we can get more awareness out there so I think in my next in a few podcasts I want to reach out on Instagram and be like hey tell me about your food scene you know email me and I'm going to talk about it on the on the podcast so I think that would be really interesting but um all right just to get into what the show is going to be about today we start out with a request from at that kid Cameron, my good friend Cam Cavita, uh, and his topic on Instagram was hole in the wall restaurants. So I'm gonna go off, go over what hole in the wall restaurants offer to you in terms of what you haven't tried before. I'm gonna talk about some experiences I had with Cam about eating in hole, hole in the wall restaurants, um, kind of raising the idea that you know these small places might have the best food you've ever tried, um, and it's there's a certain honesty about a person in a hole in the wall restaurant cooking for you. Um, and just how it helps you become a better cook by going to these places. After that, I'm going to go to a request from at EXOXMS97. Um, I'm not sure how to actually say that as a word, but at EXOXMS97 shares uh, mise en place understanding. And really to get into what it means, um, why cooks use it, why it's been such a huge part of the culinary industry and whatnot. So I'm very excited to talk about that because I just had an interview with uh, Dean Murgat. She is the Dean at the Culinary Institute of America. And why I'm excited about it is because we just had a long conversation, long interview um, I had with her on mise en place outside of the kitchen and wellness and health for uh, chefs mentally and physically. And I'm very excited to release that episode. I know it's a topic y'all have been wanting to talk about a lot. So I finally got to do that with her. Um, that'll be coming out a little bit later in April. I'll give you the dates in a little bit. Um, but I'm excited to start out with Nisa Plas in this episode as kind of a tie-in or introduction for that episode. After that, I was shared a, shared a topic by at Shrey.bo, and it's uh, working Michelin versus working in a progressive kitchen. And just me talking about how both have many benefits, and you know, how working in a progressive kitchen has benefits, and maybe some flaws, and so does Michelin, and which I prefer, and how this theme of these progressive restaurants in these small cities is really starting to become... To take hold, like becoming to take hold on their industry, and then finally, I uh, had a huge uh, moment, a uh, huge landmark in my life. Um, I've been going on a weight loss journey since this past August, and I kind of wanted to share my process for any cook out there who's overweight or struggling with, uh, you know, weight gain in the industry, or you just want to hear about my story. I really think it's important to document it. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I was able to lose 63 pounds in about seven months, and it was not through any, you know major diet change like major diet routines uh there was no pills you know there was no like it was nothing it was all natural and i was surprised i was able to do it but i kind of found this key that's working for me and if i can help someone kind of jumpstart their weight loss goals you know that'd be something that i'd be willing to do and maybe i even do a whole podcast on it um but i didn't want to you know spend the entirety of this podcast doing it because this is based on thoughts but i really just wanted to share my story for a little bit and maybe help you all who are in a situation about you know losing weight and whatnot and you want some advice or at least uh, another person's experience on it uh like i said i'm very excited um i have an espresso in me right now so if i seem a little jittery you're excited that's why i'm ready to go i've been waiting to do this podcast all week and like i said these are the things that i look forward to on my days off you know the outlets the time to create and to talk to y'all and to really build something for an audience and to know that when i'm done you can listen to this and have something to listen to and enjoy and not only am I cooking now I'm giving you an audio experience so that when I guess when I'm not doing anything it still feels like I'm doing something and I think that's my biggest thing in life is wanting to have a positive impact for the people around me or the people in the food industry and people in general but you know this is more focused toward industry people so I'm just gonna stop uh, you know stammering on and on and we're just gonna cut to the chase thank you so much for listening um, as you know, I've made shirts and hats for you all to wear. I think it would be so cool to see you all in this kitchen attire. Um, not kitchen attire, their t-shirts, but to wear it under your chef coats or whatnot, or wear the hats at work. And thank you to everyone who's purchased them so far. I actually had to order more because I sold out of some of the sizes, such as mediums and smalls. So those are on the way um, if you tried buying and didn't find your size. But thank you so much. And the site to buy those on is uh, linecookthoughts.com. It's at linecookthoughts.com, so feel free to check it out. It's a simple, you know, click on the page, and it's right there. There's no, like, more promotional stuff. You literally just go in, you pick the shirts, you go to your cart, and you, you know, you purchase it. And the reason I made it so simple is because I know you all don't have a lot of time being...
you know, so I just want to make it quick and easy for y'all to get this product and to get shirts and just be able, to be able to rep the nation that, you know, I believe so highly in and I think that you all believe highly in it as well. All right. So we're going to get into the episode. Like I said, thank you so much for listening. And here we go. So our first topic today is going to be from Add That Kid Cameron, uh, as I said in the inter- or the introduction. And yeah, so here we go. So just a little background. Uh, I met Cam at school. We went to the Culinary Institute of America together. And we met during our bachelor's program. Uh, we started working kind of the same job at school. And Cam was one of those people who kind of got me to travel to Chicago. He's one of those people who had a very positive experience on my life because he got me to travel outside of my comfort zone, albeit to Chicago, but to go to different places that I never really would have tried before. And it really opened my mind and what I was willing to try in terms of other food. So I was very grateful to meet Cam, very grateful to have him as a friend. And if you know Cam, you know that he's a very interesting person. He has great style and clothing. He's really good with fashion. Um, he's very interested in everything he does. He's doing pop-up dinners right now in Chicago with a couple of friends. And yeah, he's just someone who I look to as a creative person and someone who just has their own personality and vibe that I really enjoy talking to and being around. And, you know, I haven't been able to see him since this past summer, but hopefully we're going to get on a podcast together soon to talk to talk about what he does, which is a research and development chef. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to talk about kind of his, his thoughts on, you know, home the wall restaurants and get off, you know, get started with that Hole-in-the-wall restaurants offer food that you may have never tried before. And what I mean by that is you should go to the places in your community that you probably would have never went to before. Maybe different ethnic foods or just uh, a smaller restaurant that you don't see a lot of people going in day in and day out that you know. Um, But usually if a lot of people are there in general, it's a good sign. And if a lot of people who are there, you know, eating and enjoying and you see like stuff on line that they have good reviews but there's not a lot of reviews you should go check it out because more likely than not it's good and the reason why home the wall restaurants to me are so important is because it's someone's like it's not as grand as a michelin star but it's still someone's passion you know someone had the passion to create a restaurant that maybe represented their country uh represented a way they ate as a child uh coming over here as an immigrant or it's a restaurant that is doing a certain theme or a certain type of dining or cuisine that maybe would never be recognized as like a fine dining place, but it's still very cool and very fun. And it's something that will lead you to get new ideas and to get inspired in general. So I think going to home wall restaurants is important because it opens your, your mindset, your values on cooking. And it shows you there's, there's not just this mainline stream, uh, French and Japanese technique industry out there, but there's a bunch of different cuisines and ethnicities and backgrounds to pull from and relate to and honor and when you go to whole in the restaurants that's really what is so special about it and i'll start by sharing my experience with cam i visited cam in chicago um i think a year and a half ago it wasn't this last summer it was a year before that so almost two years now wow uh time flies um but basically went to chicago and i just wanted to go see what the city was like i don't know why i always wanted to go visit chicago i love the city um after visiting, I, I really want to live there one day for a little bit and just check it out. And I just love the culture, the vibe, the architecture. You know, the river going down the middle of the city is really cool. Uh, going to see, like, it during the summer and then also being there in the winter, it was very interesting to see. But I always thought it was just such a beautiful city. And Cam really exposed me to a lot of different things while we were there. So the only restaurant I really had planned uh, for my week stay, the first time I went to go visit Cam was Boca in Chicago. They have one Michelin star, uh, Chef Lee Wolin and pastry chef Meg Gallus, who just received another James Beard uh, nomination. So congrats to her. And we'll talk about that, I guess, briefly. Not really a whole wall restaurant, but just in general, Boca was one of the best restaurants I've ever eaten at. Uh, seasoning on the food was perfect. Uh, the plates were executed beautifully. The plating was amazing. And just the all-around service was great, and it was my first, actually, my first Michelin dining experience, and it was, you know, really inspiring, and I really just loved going to eat there, and it meant a lot to go with Cam and my friend Val, who also lives in Chicago. Um, So going to eat at that restaurant was great, but why I'm talking about it is because it's really the only place we went to that was like that. 
our friend Val took us to a couple, you know, nicer places, but Cam really took me to like the nitty gritty places that I ended up coming to love after he showed me them. So we went to this place, I think it was the second day called Phoenix uh, Dim Sum. And I never had dim sum before. And in it, uh, I was literally the only white guy in the restaurant. Uh, but it was so cool to see the cuisine. It was so cool to see the type of food they were serving. And I remember, you know, I tried a couple of things. And, well, everything I loved, at first off. Second off, it was cheap. And that really happens with a lot of home-to-wall restaurants. They're pretty cheap. I mean, we got so much food for, like, $35 for the both of us. Um, but the best duck I've ever had was at Phoenix Dim Sum in Chicago. And I've never had duck better. Uh, I'm not sure how they prepared it. Obviously, they roasted it. I'm not sure what spices were on it. But I just remember it being so, like, tender and juicy and the skin so crispy. And it was just amazing. It was, like, it was the best duck I've ever had. And I've had it now at Michelin Star restaurants. I've had it at newer, you know, fine dining restaurants. But this place, they nailed it. I don't know what they did to the duck, but it was beautiful. It was amazing. And that food memory is still in my mind today. I can still, I still feel how surprised and shocked I was at eating that and being like, wow, this was literally $4. And the, it's the best preparation of duck I've ever eaten. Um, I also got to try chicken feet there for the first time. And the importance for me of trying chicken feet was that you know, I was, I'm I'm a courageous eater. I'll eat pretty much anything. Uh, the only food I really don't like is grapefruit. I don't know why. I just can't stand the taste of it. But um, eating chicken feet for the first time showed me really how important it is to taste all parts of the animal. Um, eating chicken feet is something that I cherish because, you know, I eat chicken my whole life. And I only eat the breast and the thigh and the wing. Like, uh, I, you know, coming from Buffalo, obviously, the wing. And I'm sure most of you have only eaten that as well. So, my advice is to go try feet uh, of the chicken because it's something that, you know, is so tasty and it's so, it's so cool for me to eat and it's so fun. And I was a little weirded out at first and I'm sure Cam remembers that, but once I started eating it, I really enjoyed it. And the whole experience was really great. And so after that, um, you know, we went to a lot of great places, you know, a lot of these little restaurants and restaurants that used to be home on the walls that, you know, turn into these big chains, not chains, but these big name restaurants like Luma Hotties, Chicago Deep Dish, uh, which did not end up sitting well with me that night. But, you know, that was a experience to try, you know, this pizzeria that went from, you know, a smaller pizzeria to this like staple in Chicago. So it was very interesting to try all this food. And on my second visit to Chicago uh, with Cam, he took me to this taqueria. I don't remember the name of it, but they had these tacos and my version of eating tacos always has you know, sour cream, and, you know, they're usually, you know, it's a very Americanized taco, and they served us these tacos. It was, uh, I'm pretty sure it was beef, but I just remember, like, it was, like, this small, you know, dingy place, and, you know, the seats were almost like a school cafeteria-type seating, and we had these tacos, and they didn't even have sour cream on them, which, is, if you know me, you know I love sour cream, and, but the experience of sitting there and, you know, listening to uh, Mexican music playing and just listening to the cooks in the kitchen talking in a language that I couldn't understand and eating the tacos and just enjoying that moment and just enjoying the beauty of not knowing really anything that was going on there. And I, I get it. It's tacos. We all know what tacos are, but it's going to an environment where I really knew very little about what was going on around me and what I was like eating like traditional food um, or food that these people would have eaten uh, on coming to America or just, you know, eat, it's their comfort food that they're serving to us, really, uh, at this place. So just having that and kind of keeping it in the back of my mind while eating and just really enjoying that, it's great. And I find myself enjoying more and more of these places, these hole-in-the-wall places that are new to me, these ethnically diverse restaurants where I really don't know what's going on. So, you know, that being said, if you have a hole-in-the-wall restaurant that you've always been curious about but you've never gone to, go try it in your community. Go support that person. Uh, and that's when I went back home and started to look for different things in Buffalo and little different restaurants in Buffalo that were hole in the wall. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I really thought that, you know, going and eating in these places with Cam was a great learning opportunity. And it was something that I cherish, you know, being his friend. And I'm really glad he brought it up because I think in his mind, he was kind of thinking of my experiences when we were talking about it. But on the other side of it, what did I gain from it? Well, I gained a new interest in these cuisines, you know, so wondering how else can I cook chicken feet? How else can, can I get duck to taste that good? 
Um, you know, it opens up your mind to new techniques and ideas that you might not have had before. And it's very humbling to see uh, food from, you know, people that aren't Michelin awarded or not, aren't on the world's 50 best list. And I know I talk about it and I don't ever want it to sound like I'm negative against that. But I think we pass up the hole in the wall restaurants a lot in covering news and media. And I don't know if it's because people think it's boring, but I think it's exciting. I think it's really great to have these small places and these, you know, smaller chefs doing the food they love and the food that they want to give to their community and doing it so greatly. And I think that should be recognized and awarded. And I think with smaller cities who don't have guides and stuff like that, when you see these newspaper articles of the owner, like in Buffalo or Niagara Falls, I would always see owners of local food restaurants being like, praising the paper and I thought that was really cool you know there's just these people eat, serving our community at the end of the day and they're trying to put good food out there and I think that really is special and I think it's a special connection to have and when you go into hole-in-the-wall places you start to realize that dining isn't just about being perfect in the term of fine dining it's about being perfect in the terms of experience and what I mean by that is every restaurant has its own theme and its own message it wants to convey and I think the perfection doesn't lie in, like, the white linen tablecloth or the polished glasses. Perfection lies in executing your dreams and your goals. And perfection lies in the beauty of what you think is comfort food or what you think is food that would sustain someone else. And when you put that out on a plate, or you put it out on a paper plate, or you put it out on a basket, you know, with a deli paper in there, or, you know, whatever it is that, however you serve your food, if you put it in aluminum foil and hand it over to the guests and that's it. I think it's very important that if you're sticking to your values as a cook and you're really giving it your all and you're really putting out food that you love and that isn't compromised, I think that's why I love cooking so much. That's the beauty of it. Those are the heroes of the industry, the people who do it day in and day out, knowing that their food might not get the national recognition um, that it deserves, but they still do it anyway because they're not there for awards. They're not there for recognition. They're there to share and create and cultivate communities and I really love home the wall restaurants for that and that's why I like to go to these a lot of home the wall restaurants and it's also opened up me to try things outside of restaurants that aren't you know name brand like grocery stores or you know barbershops or you know something that isn't really well known because I wanted to see what else there is out there and I think every industry you have people working in that industry and they're like oh you really should go to this while the outsiders are like, oh, you know, what about this place? So, for example, like, you know, I'm sure if you're a cook, you're like, you've been asked at some point, oh, do you want to be the next Bobby Flay? Oh, do you want to be the next, you know, on TV? And maybe you do. Um, a lot of cooks don't want that. And they're like, you know, this isn't what our industry is all about. You know, there's more to it than just being on TV. And I think every industry has that type of ignorance from other people, not in like a bad way, but just like not knowing really what it's all about. And I think when you experience things in an industry that are more real and more like every day it helps you appreciate that industry more so thank you cam i hope well as well in chicago i'm excited to see these pop-ups keep going um if you haven't looked it up or on my page look up at 94th shy uh it's a pop-up that cam is doing with a couple of friends uh michaela dietzen and john isola and they're really just doing these great dinners in chicago um and they're just young cooks they're my age you know they're young and they're just doing things that I admire. I respect them so much, Cam and all of them for doing these pop-ups and really just putting their creativity out there to be exposed and critiqued and eaten. And, you know, I don't know if I would have the bravery to do that right now um, if I did a pop-up, but it's very cool to see them doing this and I'm very excited for what the future holds. So thank you at that kid Cameron for sharing and I hope you all enjoy this segment of the podcast. All right, y'all, mise en place. Whether it's tattooed on your forearm, whether it's in your culinary school journal, or whether it's something that your chef said you a hundred times by now, you know what mise en place means. If you don't know what it means, it's basically French for putting in place or everything in its place. And why is it important? Well, this topic was shared to me by the Instagram follower at EXOXMS97. I'm still not sure how to say that as a word. I'm sorry. Um, but she wanted to know more about Mise en Place understanding, or at least have me go into it more. So Mise en Place, like I said, is everything in place. And I think why Mise en Place is so important is because it's not only a physical act of preparing yourself, but it's also a mental act of preparing yourself. 
And the biggest thing I learned in culinary school was to read the recipe fully, or at least think through what you're about to do fully. And basically why I think it's important to think through a recipe fully is because you need to prepare. Like before I do a podcast, I write, you know, notes that I'm going to talk about, points I'm going to talk about. Um, when I started doing podcasts in the beginning, they were very free form. I used to go over a lot of topics twice and I still do that. It's just kind of my way of talking. But in my first couple of episodes, I really was just like rambling and now I have more structure and topics and you know what I'm going to talk about. And I'm sure the more I do this, the better I'm going to get at it. But what I really think Mise en Place does is it gives you a sense of what's going to happen. And we all know in the kitchen that it never goes the way you plan, ever. There's never a time in the kitchen where it goes the way you plan. You can try all you want, uh, but the stove's going to go out, a dishwasher is going to call out, and the next thing you know, you're you know strapped on time. And it's funny. you know, Every time you think you're okay in a kitchen, every time you think you're ahead of your prep, something happens, something. It's just the nature of the kitchen. It's the nature of the industry, and it's one of the reasons why I love it so much. But anyway, getting back to mise en place, why I think it's important is because you know, it's a mentality, it's a way to get yourself focused. Anthony Bourdain said that Mise en Place is the religion of all good line cooks. And I believe him. I truly believe that. It's like a, it's like a sacred, it's just like a sacred phrase for cooks. And I don't know if there's anything else out there like it. I mean, everyone knows what Mise en Place means. And I really just think to understand why it's so important for people who don't know why it's important you need to look a little deeper into it. And I, my example I like to use is the Food Network example. Um, this is something I just thought of immediately, like my first day of culinary school when Chef Cerrone was telling me about mise en place and how you have to get everything in your mise cups in line, like your parsley, your garlic, your thyme. Everything is perfectly pour, uh, measured out, ready to go so that you can execute a recipe. And then when you're in a restaurant, everything's ready to go for the rest of service. Um, and the reason why I related to Food Network cooks is because Food Network cooks always have like their ingredients ready to go. It's already all prepped out for them. And when he was telling me this, I was thinking, all right, so we're just like, you know, celebrity chefing it up. We're going to be doing, you know, prep so that when we go to cook, it will just be like we're on TV. And that's kind of how I thought about it for a long time is imagine you were going to be on TV and you needed everything prepped. You don't want to run around looking like, you know, you don't want to run around scrambling looking for everything. Like you want everything to be in place. And you know, as tested and time tested as mise en place is, as much as it's preached, a lot of cooks try going without it. And I've tried going without it when I started cooking. And sometimes I still do foolishly, and I mess up. And I know you all have been there. I know there's a time where you don't get your mise en place together, and you know that there's a time you did that, and it didn't end up going well because what happens is you're scrambling through a recipe or you're scrambling through a service. And you're just thrown off. You can't get in that groove where, you know, you're in one place and you're reaching to your right and there's something that you know you need and there's something on the left that you know you need and you turn around one step and there's something behind you, an ingredient or a tool that you need. And when that gets messed up, the flow of the kitchen gets messed up and not just you, but the rest of the people on the line. So having good mise en place is the hallmark of a good cook. It's something that takes time and years to master. You can't get mise en place perfection right away. Like, it takes time to practice because you need to anticipate what you're going to need throughout service. So, like I said, going back to the Food Network example, imagine your service as a TV show. If you were to stop every five seconds to go get something, that TV show would be boring. I mean, obviously, now they can edit it out and whatnot. But if you're going live, like you are when you cook, it'd be a boring TV show because you'd be scrambling and muttering, muttering under your breath, like, where is this? Where is that? And so having really good mise en place is how you succeed in the culinary industry. And I think it's how you succeed in life. And we're going to get about into that in a little bit. But mise en place for me is getting everything ready. So not just ingredients, like making sure my ingredients are stocked at a station, making sure they're full, but having the right tools, like going through my head for service, what equipment will I need? You know, spatulas, spoons, forks, tweezers, anything you might need. Like having all that ready to go in a nice bain-marie with sanitizer water, you know, sanitizer bucket, you know, don't forget that, obviously. And just be prepared to go into service and, you know, crush it. And I think that it's so important to talk about mise en place, but I think it's even more important to practice it on a daily basis. I see a lot of cooks, you know, they struggle and they, you know, get worked up and they get upset. But, like, 
you're always going to have struggles in the kitchen, but the best way to help yourself out is to get prepared by having me some floss. And that mental preparedness and that physical preparedness will help you no matter what. So even if you go under during kitchen and you go into the weeds and you don't come out, <laughs> you're, you've tried your best. You know it's your all. And then you know that it's up to you to get better skill-wise. But if you're not even ready to go and you fail, it's like you wonder why you fail, you know? And that's the reason why. So what I want to talk about is having mise en place outside of the kitchen is also very important. I just did an interview with Dean Margette. Uh, someone who throughout my culinary school career was very important to me on taking care of myself outside of the kitchen. And I'm going to release that podcast soon about having me some pasta outside of the kitchen. But what I really want to talk about right now for a little bit is when you plan in life, it makes life easier. When I plan for the next day, what I'm going to do, that's my me some for me in the mental list of what I'm going to do the next day. And I'll think about it and I'll, you know, maybe I'll jot something down, but usually it's just like a mental list. But when you like plan out what you're gonna do throughout the day, your day gets more efficient. So, like for example, today I'm recording this podcast, then I have to go to get groceries, I have to cook lunch, and then I have a podcast at four, and then I have a podcast at six interviews. And just having that simple schedule, that simple time frame, really just helps you kind of get out of the I'm laying in bed all day, wasting time, and then not being able to do anything. And on my last podcast, I gave the advice that laying in bed on your days off could be very detrimental detrimental to you. So having the mise en place to have a great successful day in the beginning will help you in the long run. And, you know, another thing I want to talk about with mise en place is don't rush it. Getting back to the kitchen example, you know, don't rush your mise en place. I, you know, you ever had that feeling where you're on the line and you're looking at a certain ingredient and you're like, that's probably going to run out before service, but I want to test my luck and see if I can actually get it to last all service. That's probably the worst feeling in the world because you're dreading when that time comes. And you almost know that it's going to happen, but you, for some reason, whether it's laziness or you just want to believe that, you know, that ingredient's not going to run out, you know, but it happens. If there's ever a doubt in your mind that something won't last till the end of service, just prep a little extra. Don't have that sitting in the back of your mind. I've done it before, especially when I started cooking because I didn't have the time or I just was being lazy about it. But please, just prep your station fully so that when you... All you have to worry about is getting the checks out on time. You don't have to worry about, damn, am I going to run out of this certain ingredient by 9 p.m. or am I going to have it all the way through service? And it's one of the biggest fears of mine is running out through service and prepping enough. And I know a lot of cooks, that's a big fear. And as you get more experience, you get your prep down better. But in the beginning, it's better to be safe than sorry. You know, because there's nothing worse than not being able to put up a dish because there's one component that you could have had that isn't there. And so, like I said, mise en place is more than just putting everything on a station. It's about planning and preparing to have that station be well-stocked and well-run for the rest of service. And I just really love, you know, mise en place as a whole. There's a book out there called Work Clean, and it was someone who went through the CIA program, and he talks about kind of how adopting a chef's lifestyle can help you, or like a chef's thought on a chef's view of living can help you in your general life. So I re- really recommend that book. It's called Work Clean. But, um, yeah, I mean, Mise en Place is, you know, the bread and butter of all good cooks. And I think if you don't have it, you don't have a solid foundation. And no matter what you're doing, whether it's pastry, cooking, or serving, you need to be set. You need to be ready to go. So thank you at EXOXMS97 for sharing this topic. And I look forward to hearing what you all you know, think about Mason Plus. You know what? Why don't I'm gonna put a sticker out after this episode to go along with it? And I wanna tell I want you to tell me times where you defied Mason Plus and it ended up not working out for you in the end. Times where you're like, you know what, I don't think I need to have it all there, or you're gonna just test your luck and it didn't work out. Because those are the stories I'm interested in. because uh, I know I have a lot of them. Um so yeah, just please let me know about that. And yeah, I'm excited to hear what you all have to say. The next topic is working Michelin versus progressive. And this was shared by at Shrey.bow. And I like this question uh, because it's, uh, it's a thought I had for a long time. It was a question I posed myself for a long time. You know, what, what do I want to do? It's always a question of mine. What is better for cooks, especially in the beginning? Is it better to work at a very solid progressive restaurant that has a chip on its shoulder and is, you know, trying to break the mold and trying to get a star or get recognition? Or is it working at a place that's already set, already has a solid foundation, and you know for a fact you're going to get good results, but you might end up just as another cog in the machine? 
And I think there's benefits and there's, you know, cons to each restaurant setting. So I want to kind of get into it. And this is obviously just my point of view. Uh, If you agree or disagree, you know, feel free to let me know. But this is kind of my thoughts on it. So we'll start with Michelin. Um, Never gotten to work at a Michelin restaurant, but I've staged at them. Atera in Little Washington, Gramercy Tavern. So I've had some experience being in those kitchens. And what I will say is that the intensity is unlike anything I've ever, ever seen before. Um, You know, there's just a certain vibe in the air in every Michelin kitchen I went to, from in Little Washington to Spiaggia in Chicago. Every kitchen has this air of, like, you know, we know we're good, but we're not going to get cocky and, like, fall on our face. Uh, And what I really appreciate is the hierarchy and, like, the attention to detail and, like, the the seriousness. You know, like, the cooks, they have a good time. They joke around, but they're very serious about their work and they care. And this is something that they're very passionate about. And this is why I love Michelin Kitchen so much is at the end of the day, the people there, you're there at a Michelin Kitchen because the passion for food on that level is so extreme that you need to just be immersed. And, you know, a lot of Michelin cooks might not get that well paid or they might not have the best living conditions because of their low income. And it's something that I hope the industry changes in a couple of years where we actually start giving cooks like these people more pay and, you know, a better way of life. But as it stands right now, a lot of Michelin kitchens have these, and this isn't saying any Michelin kitchen I've been to, this is just in general, from people I've talked to, is that a lot of Michelin kitchen workers don't get paid what they're worth. And it's a very hard lifestyle to live when you're chasing stars in terms of a cook trying to go into restaurants with stars. So for me, the con of working in a Michelin restaurant is A, the lifestyle out of it. How well are you getting paid? Why, you know, is it worth it to sacrifice so much, you know, to work at a place, you know, that has recognition, but you're not going to get recognized there maybe for a long time. I mean, you can work yourself up through the ranks and you can become chef de cuisine or sous chef, but even then, like, you know, it's all about the chef who is running the restaurant. So is it worth it to go and get this experience? And is it worth it to put yourself to the trials and tribulations of living on low income and maybe not getting the best meals day in and day out and just living an unhealthy lifestyle in terms of finances and eating just to get this knowledge? I mean, it all depends on you. Um, it all depends on what your values are and what you believe in. And I think another kind of working in a Michelin kitchen is it can be very competitive and it could be an almost, you know, everyone trying to put you down to get ahead. And, you know, the places I got to go to were very nice and fortunate and they were very kind to me and wanted to teach as much as possible. And you really felt that camaraderie. But in speaking to line cooks after starting line cook nation, a lot of Michelin kitchens, you know, can be very hostile and very, hard to work in because there's always someone trying to be better than you and there's this mentality that there's only one there's only room for one person at the top and how I view it is everyone has a chance to succeed in life it's all about giving and taking and about you know pushing past wanting to be better than someone and just focusing on bettering yourself but there's a lot of people a lot of cooks in these kitchens who want to just you know discredit you or bring you down so you know add that up to the poor like lifestyle that you might have due to finances is it all worth it for you and this is where progressive kitchens come into place now i'm not saying progressive kitchens will pay you necessarily more but some do and some will and some might even have benefits for you and why i think progressive kitchen is a smart move is obviously i'm biased to it i got to work at oliver's in buffalo under my chef ross who had experiences in these michelin kitchens like lbe or not michelin but like these great kitchens like lbe uh france and leanberg uh, Elenia, he got to work at these amazing places and share that knowledge with me. And I think that's what young cooks who are just starting their career should be looking for. I think, you know, there's this drive, oh, we have to get into Michelin, we have to get into Michelin. I think you should just be getting into the game of getting knowledge. And I think a lot of kitchens, it's hard to really not just become a cog in the machine because of how many people are going there. But if you go to a progressive restaurant that's doing interesting food and you can learn a ton from the techniques that they have, Focus your employment search on them because, A, you're probably going to be able to move up quicker. B, you're probably going to have more responsibility. And C, you're probably going to be recognized more than just an intern or a stagiaire for a couple of months. 
you know, when you go to a smaller restaurant that's doing like these high, these techniques that you want to learn and these chefs who have gone to all these places and have this valuable knowledge to teach you, you're getting the same knowledge. Maybe you won't get the same level of intensity in the kitchen. Some kitchens might have that, but you're going to get the same knowledge. You're going to get the same experience. And in the end, I think you're going to gain more not valuable experience because you might get thrown on the grill. You might get thrown on saute. You might get thrown in the expediting window because one day one of the cooks calls out and you don't have a team or a workforce like they do in Michelin kitchens. So I think it's very important to look at progressive restaurants as a place where you can really hone your skills and your craft and get the knowledge you need. And on top of that, progressive restaurants have chips on their shoulders. And if you ever listen to Gary Vee, you know he loves it. And I love it too. I love people or organizations with a chip on their shoulder who have something to prove, who are fighting day in and day out to get themselves to the top. And I think those are the best environments for me anyway that I like to thrive in is places that have something to prove. Even if they've been successful a long time, if they still want to just be the best or be a place that, you know, is a standard or a hallmark, I think those are the best places. I think the worst spot to go to is a place that has had its fame, has had its notoriety, or has had its, you know, its accomplishments, and then is resting on the laurels of that. I think it's very important to go to a place that's still, you know, demanding from their cooks or their service staff the best possible outcomes the best dining experiences it still has that attention to detail and level of intensity that a progressive new kitchen who hasn't been awarded anything else has and i think that's the important thing to take away from it i feel going like i feel like going to progressive kitchens you're just going to get a better value out of that and i do think it's important to stage in michelin kitchens and work there too but as someone coming out of culinary school i just think it's more beneficial in the long run to go to a place that isn't as well known or doesn't have all the awards because you get more exposure and contact to different stations and different techniques. And you don't get just, you don't just get put on garbage for a year and a half or two years. And, you know, I mean, that's fine if you're on garbage and you like it. I'm not trying to discredit anyone. I'm just saying in my experience, I've always found the progressive kitchen just gives you a better, a better chance of moving up quicker. And if you want to be on garbage and master that craft for two years, I respect that and honor that. But if you want to move up quicker and you want to learn more techniques or different stations, I think a progressive kitchen is where you should be looking at. But if you like the intensity and the drive of a Michelin star kitchen, then there's no shame in that as well. But in my personal opinion and what I believe, it's a progressive kitchen or like a smaller kitchen that has something to prove and something to gain It for is what's going to give you the experience you need to go into you know, better establishments. And I know that going into the kitchen like that helped me tremendously, you know, and I know it's going to help me going forward in my career. So those are my thoughts on it. Uh, thank you at Shrey.bo for sharing that. And I really want to hear your thoughts on whether or not working in Michelin or working in a progressive is a better career choice. And I just want to hear your experiences on it all and really wonder what your thoughts are on it. Thank you. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to touch on is kind of a personal story, or I guess my personal goal over the last couple of months, and basically it was to lose weight. So uh, I've always I was I was like thinner as a kid, um, but as I started getting in my teen years, I started to gain weight. Uh, but it wasn't until I started working in the restaurants that I really started to gain a lot of weight. Uh, and when I went to culinary school, I was sitting around uh, two hundred and eight pounds, and after four years of culinary school, graduating this past July, I left culinary school at 278 pounds. I gained 70 pounds throughout my culinary school, my four years of culinary school. And, you know, I was very unhappy about that. I was very self-conscious in my body. Um, not only outside of work, but inside of work. You know, you wear things like aprons and you wear chef coats and they're getting too tight and aprons are too tight or they don't look right on you. And you're just a, being a bigger person in the kitchen was very difficult for me because, you know, I wasn't like, like over overweight, but I was definitely in an unhealthy state. And when you're like tall like me and you're overweight, it's just very hard in the kitchen because A, you always feel like you're in the way. B, people can sometimes be unkind to you about that, which I know the kitchen is tough. So, I mean, that's, that doesn't really bother me. But what bothers me more was that, I could change it. And there was always an excuse for me. And it wasn't because I was lazy. And when you're trying to lose weight, it's not because you're lazy, but it's just because it's hard to adopt a new way, a new lifestyle, 
a new way of eating, a new way of thinking about food, a new relationship with food is what you're basically doing. And it's very difficult to keep having that, you know, continue or to keep having that, like, to keep trying to change it, I guess. So for me, losing weight was very difficult. And not only in the kitchen was I aware of it, but outside of the kitchen, like, you know, a lot of my pictures from when I was very overweight, I would always be crossing my arms or I wouldn't really take pictures in the summer because I was very embarrassed of how I looked. And, you know, I'm trying to be honest with you all and tell you all this because I just wanted to get, I want to get to the point of why I like started to live this, like started to lead this lifestyle. And so this new lifestyle is healthier lifestyle. And so, you know, you go through culinary school, you're eating a lot of food. There's always access to food and in kitchens, there's always access. And, you know, I'd always be snacking during service, you know, eating cheese or whatnot, and just being very unhealthy, having family meal and then having maybe a snack in between service and then going home and then being hungry after work and eating and having a beer. And so there was just this constant eating of food. And for four years, I don't think I was ever hungry. I'll be honest with you. I think I ate so much that I don't think I was ever hungry. And food, you know, it just starts to come natural to you to eat. The more you eat, the more easier it is to eat. Like you just start snacking and grazing almost. And, you know, I don't, I'm saying all this because this is how I felt. And when you start to eat so much, when you start to gain so much weight, it's harder for you to perform in the kitchen. Uh, there's times where, like, you know, you're just uncomfortable. Like, your clothes aren't fitting right, and you already have that going into ser- service, especially if it's hot in the kitchen, you're sweating a lot, and it's just, like, it's not good. Like, it, you, you just feel tense. You feel, like, gross, and you're just like, oh, like, I just want to change this. I need to change this somehow. And that that's where I was. I was in August. It was after I graduated. And I was looking at myself in graduation photos, and I was like, I don't want to look like this the rest of my life. You know, I don't want to be severely overweight or like I don't want to be at a, at a weight where I'm going to have a lot of trouble later on in life um I just don't want to be this person who's always overweight and always unhappy with how they look I didn't want the rest of my life to not be proud of who I am on the outside and not be able to look at myself in the mirror and not be able to change that and it was so difficult to change it because of being a cook and being someone in the industry and wanting to always taste new foods and wanting to always try new things and I thought if I ever had to lose weight that I would be have to give up like tasting menus or like going out to eat as much. And it wasn't the case and it's not the case, but at the time that's what it was. And I was, there was a point for like six months uh, near the end of culinary school where I just accepted I was going to be overweight. I was just like, you know what? Chefs are typically portrayed as overweight people. This is the industry I'm in. I'm going to be working with food a lot. Uh, this is just who I am. I'm always going to be overweight, especially since I'm going to be a chef. And I think that's the wrong mentality to have. It was definitely for me, and it's an unhealthy one. And whether I was in depression or I was just in a very sad state, I always hated how I looked, always adjusting my shirt, always, you know, looking in the mirror, trying to look better in pictures, knowing that I looked terrible next to the people who I was standing with. And, you know, you just develop this very poor self-image. And even as I was losing weight, I was like, oh, my God, like I still look terrible. Um... But I just wanted to get into like how I lost the weight and how I lost it so fast, I guess, because I lost 63 pounds in 224 days. Uh, so as of today, I weighed in. So I put up a post on my personal Instagram two days ago, but I weighed in this morning. I'm at 214 pounds and I started at 278. So that's 64 pounds. And that was in 226 days now. So about seven months, I lost two hundred. Uh, I lost 64 pounds. And when I set my goal weight of 215 pounds, I didn't think I'd reach that for like two years. I thought I'd, or three years max, I thought I'd hit, end 2019 around 250 if I was lucky. And then that was it. But I don't know what happened. I mean, I was just fed up and tired of it. And if you know me, you know that I'm a very obsessive person over things. And when I want something, I don't really have the patience. So it was very hard. But um, I'll tell you why I failed at losing weight in the first couple of times I tried it in culinary school. And it's because I didn't have patience. And I got discouraged whenever I stepped on the scale and I was the same weight. Um, but at culinary school, you know, I was stressed. I was doing a lot. Uh, not only was I going to school, I was a resident assistant. I was on student government. I start, started a community garden. I was, you know, working on with administrators on different tasks about sustainability and how to, you know, get better opportunities for students. And I was doing a lot. My days started usually around 7 a.m. and ended around 11 p.m. 
And yeah, I know it was at culinary school. So if you have never been or you went to culinary school, you're like, it wasn't that hard, but it was a lot of hard work for me. And I really made the most of my experience. And, but I was eating very unhealthily. I would have at 9 PM, these like Starbucks frappuccinos in our school, you know, dining area. I would get these at night just to stay awake. And I would be eating all this dairy and all these bad things for me. And my girlfriend, Dominica, uh, she's a pescatarian and she doesn't eat dairy. And she was telling me how when she quit dairy, she felt her body, be, you know, she felt a lot better. And I love cheese. I love sour cream. Sour cream is one of my favorite ingredients. Um, so I didn't give up dairy, but I was like, all right, I definitely have to decrease it because I'm drinking milk every day. I'm eating like ice cream for me. I was eating like every other day. Like it was insane. Not just in the summer, like in general, like I would always think like, all right, I'll just have ice cream today. I'll just have ice cream. I didn't have ice cream in like two days. <clears throat> and I'm not saying to not eat the foods that you don't enjoy, but like for me, it was all about starting to control it. So the biggest thing for me was eating at night. And I think that was the biggest way to lose first, like the first 15, 20 pounds was to stop eating at night and get rid of soda. So if, I'll start with soda. Soda for me has caused so many issues just like with weight gain, acne and whatnot. So I cut soda out. Uh, I didn't compromise on that. I still haven't had soda since August. Um, <clears throat> it's almost been like seven months. Um, and I just don't, I don't even find soda. Like I don't even have a need or want for soda anymore. I just don't think it's just, I, it has such a negative. It's been such a negative part of my diet and my life that I just don't want to drink soda anymore. I'm sure I'll have it in the future. I'm not going to never have it again, but I just don't see it as a drink anymore. So that I want. So the drink that I chose, because I love, you know, I just love sweet drinks. And I think a lot of people do was coconut water. Um, when I was working at Oliver's with Ross, you know, I, they would always go to the gas station, and ask me what I wanted. And they would be get like Gatorades or sodas or Red Bulls. And I don't drink Red Bulls. I don't drink energy drinks ever. I've never even had an energy drink. If you believe me or not, I've never tried one. Um, but I would drink coconut water all the time. Uh, and I think that really helped get rid of the sugary drink need because for me I just love the taste of coconut and coconut water is so refreshing when it's cold and it just has this like sweet and a little bit savory flavor and I just really enjoy drinking coconut water so that's like my soda and now I'll have like a you know one of those naked juices or a fruit juice um those are really the only sweet things I'll, I'll have uh in terms of like coffee wise I'll have like coffee or espresso um but not a lot of cre no creamer I don't use coffee creamer at all I usually drink I drink my coffee black and if I make a latte it's with almond milk but um so yeah and then eating late at night was a big thing for me and what I mean by that is when you get off of work I'm sure a lot of you snack and my biggest piece of advice is to not I was very strict with myself and said that I wouldn't eat past 8 p.m even on work days especially on work days and this might not work for everyone and this is no way like an endorsement or like a challenge or like me giving you you know, me telling you to do this, this is just my experience and my advice. Because a lot of people have been asking me how I've done it. A lot of cooks have asked me that being in the industry. Um, but for me, not eating past 8 p.m. Because I realize, and you know, there's studies out there that can show this. When you eat late, your body isn't able to digest it as well as if you ate it earlier in the day. So I'd be getting home and I'd be having all these meals. So I'd get home at like, you know, 11, 12, 1 in the morning, and I'd be having full meals and going to sleep on these full, on this full stomach. And you get up and you're not even hungry for breakfast, but you eat breakfast anyway, or if you don't eat breakfast. But it's just an, a very unhealthy cycle. And the hardest part was going home and not eating. I remember the first, like, two and a half weeks I was, like, suffering. I was like, oh, my God, I am so hungry. Like, I just got off of work, and I just want to have, you know, a beer. I just want to have a, like, a piece of pizza that's sitting in the fridge or anything. But I would control it. And I would say, you know what? No, like you're not like you, you can get through this. And I don't just go to sleep right after work. I'm sure a lot of you don't, don't either. Like I'm awake after I work a long service. So I really just focused on doing other things like reading a cookbook or playing my PS4. And that helped me get my mind off of eating food. And so that's my biggest, that was my biggest thing is not eating late. And I still don't eat late. I try to have all my eating done by eight. Uh, the next thing was sweets. Um, you know, again, that's the dairy thing. I still eat dairy, but very, you know, very moderately. I feel like dairy for me was a big thing. Uh, growing up, it was like an everything. So 
really cutting back on dairy was important for me because of how fattening it was to me in my own experience. Like I said, this isn't relating maybe to you. Um, but a lot of, like, if I did eat dairy, like, it'd be very rare. It'd be like a tablespoon of sour cream or whatnot. And I think we don't really recognize how fattening dairy can be for us. So, like I said, my girlfriend, Dominica, really showed me that. And we go get ice cream that's dairy-free. We go to Van Leeuwen in New York City, which is an amazing ice cream company. Uh, their cookies and their, their uh, cookies and cream caramel dairy-free ice cream is amazing. But cutting back on dairy and then for sweets, I started buying dark chocolate because I really love chocolate. And I, like, I'm being honest, I literally have a, like a three three squares of dark chocolate a night. That's like my sweet to end the day. Uh, I actually got it from John George. He says he has chocolate every night before he goes to bed. So I started adopting that. And it got me through my sweet craving at night. But And it was like, all right, you're, you ended the day with a piece of chocolate on a sweet note. Um, but then having like only three squares lets you have it for a longer time, which allows you to afford more different chocolates to try. So that's kind of my eating. And a lot of my diet off of work was like these great like, – they don't sound healthy. It's it was like a stir fry. I was like I would make rice and I would put it in a pan with a little bit of fat and you know put eggs, scallions, mushrooms, and that would be like a lot of my meals were like grain focused, you know, food. Not just rice, but like quinoa and farro and a bunch of different stuff like that. Having a lot of fish, uh, cutting back on a lot of red meat. You know everything that you hear but you don't actually do. And I really just ate better and I got more local produce when I was able to and. The biggest thing for me is that I guess you should take away is you don't need to eat as much. Everything tastes so much better when you're hungry. And you can look up like intermittent fasting. I've never done that, but I thought that was a cool diet to kind of adopt maybe in the future. But everything tastes better when you're hungry. So for me, eating three square meals a day and not really snacking that much. And if I need a snack, having a couple of nuts or fruit, you know, so that's kind of how I lost my weight. And then the last part was exercise. Exercise is very important. You don't need to get it a lot. Like you don't need to like do it a lot. Like you don't need to go crazy and like go to the gym and get jacked. Uh, but the thing that worked for me are these ropes. They're called TRX ropes. Uh, they're in most gyms. They're in the gym at my college, but I never used them. This was after. So I got a gym membership at World Gym, and they had a free uh, trainer, uh, pro, uh, free trainer session. So I did a trainer session, told them my goals, and basically they told me I had the body of a third year old. 35-year-old when I was at 278 pounds. I'd love to see what age my body is at now. But um, basically, his routine he showed me was all these bodyweight exercises. So I would go three to four times a week, you know, plus working in a kitchen. That's a pretty hefty load. And I would just do these bodyweight exercises. I'd be there about 40 minutes. And that's the thing. If you can get a training session with someone for like a day and just write down the bodyweight exercises and do those for a couple months, you're going to shed a lot of weight because – when you're working your muscles, at least in my case, from my understanding, when I was working my muscles and I was, you know, really losing, like starting to lose weight, it was because when I went home, my muscles were still burning fat. The exercise I was doing before the session was a lot of cardio and ellipticals. And I always thought I just had to sweat it all out and go really fast and I would lose weight. But my trainer was explaining that that's not the case. Like you're not, your body's not burning anything when you leave the gym. Whereas if you're working on muscles and body weight exercises, you're, you know, using, your, your body's still using all the energy to burn fat. So that's the other thing. Like, no, Do a little research on what exercise is going to work best for you because if you're just going to the gym and doing cardio, putting your headphones in and doing the elliptical for 40 minutes like I was doing for literally two years and not seeing any progress, then it's probably that as well. I mean, diet, they say, is a lot of it. And I agree, diet is a lot. But also doing the right exercises is a lot and knowing what's better for you. And I hate cardio, but I love bodyweight exercises. So these TRX ropes are something you can buy and you literally throw them over your door and you can do all these different workouts. And I would suggest going to a gym at first just so you have more diversity. But if you feel comfortable after that to do TRX, I mean, I suggest doing it. I mean, I'm still losing weight. Um, my I passed my goal. And now, like I guess looking forward, I just want to be more toned. Um, I want my body to definitely be in better shape physically, you know, a little bit more muscle, a little less, you know, flab, I guess. But um, what I really wanted to share with this is that if you're a cook in the industry, you can do it. Uh, it's very difficult, and I feel for you if you're trying to lose weight and it's just not working. I it took me four years to really get it, and I know it's taken it takes people maybe a lot longer than that. But the thing you the thing that got me through it at the end of the day is that I didn't want to live my life ha hating food at the end. Like I didn't want to look back on life and 
be pissed off at everything I ate. I didn't want to look back on my life and be pissed off at the image I had of myself all the time. And I think that was like the, I think that was the, the reason I went ahead and just started losing weight because I didn't want to look back on life and see myself as this ugly person I always portrayed myself as. And if you're overweight, like, you know, like, that's the other thing. Have a positive self-image of yourself. Like, I know I wasn't able to, and that's ultimately what led me to lose weight. But I wish someone would have told me that, you know. And, and people did, but I just didn't listen. But, like, no matter where you are in your life, like, there's beautiful qualities to you, and there's beautiful things to look at. And don't always just be focused on the negative like I was. And a lot of what I learned through losing weight was that you also have to start looking at the positive more. Like, right now, I'm still unhappy kind of with how I look. Like, I want to be more in shape. I don't you know, I want to start wearing large shirts again instead of extra large. I want to be a little more trimmed down. But I've seen how far I've come. I've seen the goals I've set out to accomplish. And I see everything I'm doing, and I'm just proud of myself. And I don't look at myself as, like, a negative thing anymore. Like, I don't see myself in a negative light anymore. And for years, I was just very unhappy with myself and how I looked and who I was. And just by changing around positively everything in my life and doing things that were meaningful – and kind of figuring out who I am, and still figuring out who I am so far, it just meant a lot. So if you're a cook out there struggling with weight gain, or, you know, overweight, or you're just not happy how you look, like, look at yourself positively first, and then start the journey. Look at your positives, and your, the attributes that make you like yourself, and then start your journey. Because when you do it negatively, like, I wasn't happy with myself. I lost, I remember I lost 27 pounds in the first two months, or the first month and a half, and I still wasn't happy. And, you know, it's all about your perspective and you just have to like be your biggest fan, your biggest cheerleader and just keep going and pushing for yourself. So this is my story about that. I want to do a full episode on it and go more in detail later on. But I've, I posted that and a lot of cooks who follow me on my my personal Instagram page and also follow me on Line Cook Thoughts asked me about it. So I wanted to share like a few minutes of that. Uh, my personal page is Razor underscore J. So it's R-A-Y-Z-O-R underscore J. I started it in middle school. So please don't hate my name on it. But um, yeah, I mean, this is my story of losing weight, and I really empathize with people who are trying to do it. And if anyone out there ever wants to reach out and kind of get advice and wants to know more about how I lost my weight, you know, just hit me up. Like I'm totally for talking about it because I know how struggle, I know how much of a struggle it is. I know how sometimes embarrassed you can feel. And like I said, it was just a place, a very dark spot in my life where I was just very unhappy with who I was in the mirror. But now I look in the mirror and I'm like damn, like you changed, like you did something for yourself. And it, out of cooking and everything, taking care of myself has been one of the best things I've done for myself. So, you know, like I said, if you're a cook who in general just wants to take better care of themselves and you want to talk about something or you resonate with what I've said, you know, just I'm here for you and I, I'm, pu- I'm pushing for you and I'm hoping that you achieve everything you need to get done in life. So, you know, we're here for a short time, make the most of it and worry about, I feel like a lot of cooks don't worry about themselves and you should really love yourself as much as you love your career and make sure you take care of, take care of yourself as much as you take care of your career. So thanks for letting me share. And I'm very excited to hear what y'all have to say about your own, you know, personal goals and what you're trying to achieve. All right, y'all. So now we're going to go into some line cook thoughts to end the episode. You know, I like to do this at the end of every episode, just go on the Instagram, you know, where it all started and, Look at some of the thoughts that y'all have shared and really just talk about them and give my thoughts on them and kind of share it again on the platform. So this first one is from at Lemmy Lime underscore. It's at Lemmy Lime underscore. And they say, I first realized I love food when I was eight and my mother taught me how to make spaghetti. I love the process of creating a menu, selecting the meats and the produce, all the different ways there were to cook one thing and finally sitting down with family to enjoy it together. Food is the most basic connector for all for all humans. I figured that out when I was eight, and I'm still celebrating that today. I really agree with this, and I really love the idea of a food memory kind of inspiring you to be a better cook or to get into cooking. Um, in my interviews with people, I always ask their favorite food memory or a childhood memory they have of food because I think it's so important to realize where you come from in a food aspect and apply that to your cooking in the modern day. So, you know, I think it's great to like kind of reflect on what food has meant to you so far and push forward with that. And I think it's super cool to hear about people who were really young and knew they wanted to be a chef right away. I didn't know I wanted to be a chef until I was like 17. So for me to hear this from other people, it really just 
it's really inspiring to see that some people just had this drive since they were eight. So thank you at Lemmy Line for sharing. And, you know, I, I want to hear more of these childhood food stories if you could share them. This next one's coming from at Stovetopped. And it says, have you ever cooked for someone because you love them? Cooking holds the magic of love. It is an expression of generosity, an expression of love and human connection. I'm fortunate to offer whatever I can create each time I cook for others. I really like this because it really shows how cooking is an act of love almost. It's a love for someone else. It's a love for humanity. When you cook, you're cooking because you want someone else to feel sustained. You want someone else to feel important through food. And, you know, this is a topic we've been touching on a lot in this episode, but I really think it's important to have a good relationship with food. And getting back to the weight loss story, that was the biggest thing is getting a positive relationship with food over time. And so when you cook for someone and you keep giving them these positive experiences, they're going to have this positive relationship with food. And I just really like the idea, message and idea that you're cooking out of love and to nurture and to help someone. So thank you at Stovetop for sharing. All right. And then the last one is going to be coming in from at Sarah and Steven. And she says, cooking is a unique expressive outlet for me. It allows me to share my passion for creativity and visual arts through the universal language of food. This is really nice. She, she shares a bowl. I think it's an acai bowl. I never had one. Uh, sorry if you like acai bowls. But basically, it's a really beautiful picture. And I really think, you know, this is something we don't talk about enough on this podcast is a visual element of food. The contrast of colors, the beauty of it all. And I think it's very important to have food that looks very good. And I'm very inspired by chefs who take food as art. And they use their chef's knife, you know, as a paintbrush is like one of the sayings. But really just using food and knowing that food can be such a beautiful thing and putting it on a plate in an artistic way, you know, with intention to make it look like art. I think there's something, there's something valuable in that. I think it holds a tremendous amount of impact for a lot of cooks when they see stuff like that. So thank you at Sarah and Steven for sharing that. And, you know, I just love artsy food. I love Instagram food. You know, I love the whole social media movement of putting food up. And I know there's people who hate and like, Oh, now we're not eating. You have to take a picture of everything. I think it's cool that we're documenting what food we eat and what food we're getting because in 100 years, these pe people are going to be able to look back and be like, oh, this is what they ate and whatnot. And I think it would have been really cool if, like, Escoffier was around with an Instagram and took a picture of him recipe testing his cookbook and then putting it out on the internet. So, you know, I think it's really cool to have Instagram and visually striking food, and I really enjoy this quote. So, once again, thank you, at Sarah and Steven. So those are the Lion Cook Thought quotes I'm sharing for today. And once again, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for those who shared their thoughts. And thank you for listening to my story about weight loss. And I really hope that helps you get inspired to do whatever it is that you've been wanting to do in life in some way. Um, but like I said, I'm always here for you guys to talk. I'm always here for y'all. Uh, if you ever want to chat, if you want to just like talk about something, like my, my Instagram box is always open. Feel free to send me a message. I respond to everyone. Um, and if I miss like a quote from you or something and you haven't seen it up in a while or if i miss something just let me know because at the end of the day it's just me running this there's no team behind this there's no you know other person it's literally just me doing all this and i love it and i wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world but sometimes i mess up and sometimes i miss things so you know just keep reaching out to me and i'm excited to see this community grow uh right now we're at 2,270 followers i think and we're just growing right now really nice and, you know, just keep sharing and promoting it. And this this movement of caring for each other for cooks is something I truly believe in. So thank you so much for listening, Line Cook Nation, and I'll see you on the next episode.